Jesus. Amen. Dear saints, we have before us a string of three parables from the mouth of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. One is of the lost sheep, one is of the lost coin, and one is of the lost son. Or you may know it better uh, by the name of the prodigal son. Christians have called these three parables the golden center or the golden heart of the gospel or the gospel within the gospel because it reveals so beautifully the love of God for lost and condemned sinners. But before preaching on these parables, what you should understand is what prompted Jesus to even say them in the first place. In Jesus' day, the prevalent doctrine, as I've told you before, uh, of the day was works righteousness. That is that you had to earn your way to heaven. About a month ago already, I preached at length about this in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and how Nicodemus was concerned that he wasn't good enough to go to heaven. He was, uh, <clears throat> he was anxious about it. Now, <clears throat> if Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, Someone who lived a good and God-pleasing life was worried about his salvation and could not be certain of his salvation, then what hope would anyone else have? If he couldn't be certain, then who could be? So no one stood a chance. So when Jesus came, he came preaching the gospel, repentance and the full and free forgiveness of sins, all of them. Not in part, but the whole. And this is what brought Nicodemus to Jesus. And this is what brought all the sinners and tax collectors to Jesus. This is exactly why Jesus attracted to himself all sorts of bad people to himself. People who had terrible reputations. People who uh, gave up already trying to earn eternal life a long time ago. They gave up on that dream. People who try to make the best of the life that they had, the little bit that they had left, because they already squandered it and ruined their chance. These were people who of, uh, that all of society had written off as having ruined and botched their only chance of seeing the kingdom of heaven. If the righteous couldn't be sure of their salvation, then how could a prostitute or a tax collector ever redeem himself, herself. There's not enough time in this life to make up for your sins, for any of us. These people were lost. They squandered what God gave them. Their hope of heaven was gone. And so the reason they gathered around Jesus was because Jesus gave bad people hope of eternal life. These bad people were drawn to Jesus, not for signs and wonders, but because of what he said. He drew broken hearts to himself like iron to a magnet. They gravitated towards his words. So when the scribes and Pharisees saw all these bad people gathered around Jesus, listening to him, hanging on his every word. And when they saw that Jesus didn't push them away or reject them, the scribes and Pharisees grumbled and they said this, 
This man receives sinners and he eats with them. They say this as a judgment against him, as a slander against him, to, as, as something that ruins his reputation. But by the way, these are present tense verbs, which means that it's not a one-time event. It's not that they found him this one time sitting with uh, sinners and tax collectors. This was an ongoing habit of Jesus so that he would continually and constantly sit with the same people. They were constantly gathered around him in this way. That people weren't even allowed to step foot in the synagogues or even associate with the Jews. They were the outcasts. And the Pharisees and the scribes, when they see this, they grumble and they were indignant. They were furious because here they are trying to, to, to earn eternal life, living a good life, putting their blood, blood, sweat and tears into earning heaven while Jesus spoke peace and comfort to bad people, notorious and wicked people who live scandalous lives. That's that's the scene. That's what's going on here. And that's what brings us to these parables. Jesus tells then the parable of a lost sheep, the parable of a lost coin, and then the parable of a lost son. I could preach a sermon on all three of these if I wanted to, one individually. It'd be three different Sundays, but we don't have the time for that. So I'm only going to preach on the third parable, the parable of the lost son, and only part of that even. But I want you to take it to heart and hear what it is. Jesus gives the story. He says there's a father who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, the son is saying, Dad, I know you're going to die one day. And when you die, you're going to leave me all this half of your stuff, all of this stuff. So instead of making me wait until you die... Just give me all of this stuff now. Just give it to me now and then I can go on my way and I can live my life and enjoy everything. So give me half of everything today. What this son is doing, he's proving that he loves his stuff more than he loves his father. It's entirely disrespectful and rude. In fact, if my youngest son, Anderson, ever said this to me, I would scold him and tell him to get a job and get out. But in this parable, the father does something absurd. He gives it. He gives the inheritance to begin with. And then the text says, and the father divided his property, everything that was his, he divided his property between them, plural. That is this son who asked for it and the other son who didn't even ask for it, the older son. He gave everything he had to both of them, even, even the other one. Now, a few days later, the younger son gathers all of his stuff, all of his inheritance, all of the money and possessions. And this was his plan the entire time. He's tired of living at home under his father's rule, under his father's house. He thought he could go and make a better life for himself somewhere else. Just give me the freedom, give me the stuff and the freedom, and I can do it better. I can make a better home. I can make a better life than the one you're giving me here. That's what I want. That's what he's desiring. So he follows his dreams and his treasures in this world. And then Jesus says, after some time, the son squandered his property in reckless living. That is, he ruined his own life. He lost every penny. 
And more than that, he had nothing to show for it. He had no gain, no improvement, nothing good left. He didn't even have friends. He lost everything doing stupid things. And when he had nothing left, there was a great famine, and he became a servant, a slave, feeding pigs. And he was so hungry that he was salivating to eat the slop that the pigs were eating. That's how much need he was in. No one helped him. And all the friends he had abandoned him because it turns out that they loved his money more than they loved him. They loved what he did more than who he was. And this young son was not only in need, but he felt the, 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 the pain of being forsaken. So as he's suffering here alone, far away from his father's home, <clears throat> he comes up with a plan and he says this to himself. How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? But here I perish with hunger. So I will go to my father and I will say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That is, forget that I'm your son. Treat me as a worker, as a slave. I, I, I'd be happy with that even. So he has this all planned out. He, in his mind, says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my father than dwell in the tents of the, the wicked. So he has this speech ready. He's rehearsing it over and over again to try and convince his father to take him back, <clears throat> to give him the lowest place in his home. And he's ready for his father to reject him, and he's ready to uh, haggle with him, and is ready for his father to be angry with him and to say, what have you done? What did you do with everything I gave you? Where is it? So this young son is nervous, anxious, going back to his father's house. <clears throat> and in the meantime, keep that in mind. In the meantime, you see the father and he is waiting and watching. He's standing by the window, waiting to see if his son would walk by. And one day, while the son is walking back to his father's house, covered in filth, with empty hands, stained with sin and guilt and regret, the father sees him in the distance. He sees just a silhouette that looks like his son. And, and the scriptures say, And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And he didn't worry about the filth or the dirt or soot that got on him. He held on to his son with all of his might. And the son started to recite his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And while the son is still speaking, the father cuts him off and calls out to his servants saying, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate because this my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and now is found. <clears throat> I don't even have to say this, but I will. That this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And it's more beautiful because it's not just a beautiful story between a father and a son. 
It is reality between God and you. This son who wasted everything the father gave him is the story of you. The story of you sinning and breaking God's commandment and dragging the body that God gave you through the mud. It's the story of you doing stupid and foolish things in your life. Thoughts you can't unthink. Words you can't take back. Deeds you can't undo. Things that you are still ashamed of. It's the story of you being baptized, growing up in the church, sitting with your parents, hearing the word of God, going to Sunday school, learning the catechism, learning who God is and what he says, and then throwing it all away to gain fleeting favor and acceptance in the eyes of this world. It's the story of when you took your inheritance from God and used your freedom to squander your life in excess in lust, in drunkenness, in idolatry, in adultery, in anger, in addiction, in shameful regrets, and so on. It's a picture of when you did all these things and when you didn't realize the great and glorious blessing that you had here. How great life really was before this, before you brought anguish and misery upon yourself. It's also the story of you being afraid to come back to church again. Saying to yourself, after you have sinned, if I walk back in that church now, the roof will collapse on me. And, and saying, if I, I don't deserve a place there. And this is the story of you trying to figure out how to right your wrongs, how to pay back what you've done, and how to make up for your sins and your guilt. And this is also the story of God, your dear Father in heaven, seeing you in the distance, running out to you cutting you off and saying, I forgive you for everything, for all of it. This is the story of God's heart overflowing with compassion when you were at your worst, forgiving you every single ounce of sin and regret. This is God robing you with mercy and grace and kindness when he had every right to cast you out or treat you like a slave. This is God wiping away your sins and drowning them in the depths of the sea. This is God taking your broken and contrite heart, binding it and healing it with his unending and undying love. This is God receiving you and, and, and now and giving you now more than you've ever lost. It's the story of God accepting sinners without any merit or worthiness in them. That is what this is about. This is God receiving you back to his kingdom through the blood of his son. And this explains how everyone who is in heaven got there. And it explains how you will get there too. That we will be in the father's kingdom, not because we earned it, but because he gave it. The mountain of your past sins can't outweigh the righteousness of Christ. So what do you do with this information? What do you do now? Well, you need to measure your value and worth not by what the world thinks of you or even by what you think of yourself. You find your value and worth in the God who looks at you and tells you what he thinks about you. You do this by looking to the cross and you see how much your forgiveness cost him. 
In fact, in fact, Jesus, it costs Jesus more to save you than your worth. Consider that. It was more expensive to save you than what you, uh, the, the, the inherent worth that you have. The blood of Jesus, think about it, is much more valuable than you are, right? It's much more valuable than your entire life. His precious and holy blood is infinitely better and more valuable and holy and righteous than yours, right? What kind of exchange is this? And yet when Jesus died on the cross to redeem you, when he spilled his innocent blood for you, he wasn't saying that this is how inherently valuable you are and how much it costs. He's saying that this is how deeply valuable you are to him. How much he considers you. He doesn't love you because you're valuable. In fact, you are valuable because he loves you. It is found in his love. That is where your worth is. And that will never shake or waver or change. This is like when my son Anderson, um, when my son draws me a picture. And all anybody sees is a bunch of scribbled crayon lines and slobber and (laughs) on a crumbled piece of paper. And objectively speaking, it's not good. It's not good art. It won't sell for anything. It's worthless. But I wouldn't trade it for the world because it's beautiful to me. It is precious to me because it's from my son. He is mine. And even if nobody else finds it valuable, I do. Even if it has no value or worth in this world, it is the most valuable thing to me. So the point is that we have no worth or value on our own or beauty. We're a mess. We find nothing good in us. Our hearts are trashed, ugly, and stained. But when your heart is broken and contrite before him, this is a heart that the Lord will not despise. God doesn't rejoice in your sins, and neither should you. But God rejoices in you. When he sees you, he considers you worth more than the blood in his veins and the breath in his lungs. You remember your own sins and see your failures, and you feel useless and worthless, but God does not remember them. He casts them away from you. The Lord looks at you with eyes filled with love. So dear saints, what you feel about this parable and the joy it gives you is a small glimpse of what God feels about you. If you ever want to know what does God think of me and how does he consider me, you don't look at your life circumstances. You look at the cross. If you want to know what God thinks of you, you you take your Bible, you mark this page in your Bible and you open it up and you read it again and again. How does God feel about you? How does God react when a sinner is brought back to him time and time again? Can it get any more obvious? What is his reaction to a lost sheep? What is his reaction to finding the lost coin? What is his reaction to finding his lost son? He has overwhelming joy. The Lord delights in you. He rejoices in you. And and, and don't think for a minute, don't think for a minute that it's as though you fail, you come back and the Lord says, okay, fine, I'll let you back. As if he does it reluctantly or shaking his head and saying, you should have known better. No, he brings you back with joy. 
And it's not. It is not a one-time event. Some people will preach this text and say, well, this is your conversion. This is what happened once in your life when you became a Christian and no more. One chance. This is what, what Jesus says here is every single time you repent. Every single time you walk through those doors. Every single Sunday you, you come back to this church with a week full of sin and guilt from last Sunday. This is the absolution of God opening his arms to you and receiving you again. This is what every single Sunday looks like. This is what every day in the, the house of your father looks like. So don't grow weary or faint. Even if you've sinned a thousand times, he will forgive you each one of those times. Don't think you've messed up too many times or think that you've said sorry too much that God can't forgive you. You have no reason never to, uh, to, to not repent or to stay away from church. That's a foolish thing to do. But to come to him and hear his word and receive his forgiveness. You, you may have made a terrible mess of your life and wandered away, but you can't go too far that you can't come home again. God is here day by day waiting to forgive you no matter how guilty you feel, how much you've ruined your, your life. In Jesus, you will always have hope. And as often as you repent, that is how often he will bring you back home. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.